people will start to detect what is the AI email and what is the human email. If a sales rep won't spend three to five minutes to write me a personalized email, and they're going to rely on some at scale component of fake personalization, then why would I spend 30 minutes or an hour with them to look at their demo or listen to their sales pitch? So we mm -hmm. approached it a different way. We build our entire product against these two axes of what's effective and what's, what's efficient. So what's most efficient is full automation. What's most effective is no automation and intense personalization. And with high efficiency, you'll have low reply rates. With high effectiveness, you'll have low volume. So we kind of find someplace in the middle. So what Lavender does in our personalization tool, it's not quite at scale, but it does reduce true personalization down to under 30 or 60 seconds for most users. It's not fully at scale, but it does streamline all the work and make it much easier for the user. Every SaaS company plays for high stakes, but what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists, and we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Ready to unlock the true power of marketing strategy? In this theme, we'll explore the world of cutting-edge marketing strategies and tactics that are shaking up the SaaS industry. We'll share insights on testing new tactics and uncover the latest developments from digital landscape giants like Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll also explore how AI is revolutionizing the digital landscape and transforming marketing tactics. So grab your headphones and get ready for a marketing strategy masterclass with Paris Talks Marketing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today, my guest is William Balance, who is the CEO and co-founder at Lavender. William is a sales rep turned startup founder. He's co-founder and CEO of Lavender, which is a tech startup that uses communication psychology and AI to help salespeople write more effective emails faster. His experience running a series of fundraising campaigns that helped save a historic women's college Sweet Briar from closing introduced him to the cognitive sciences and led to the creation of Lavender. So, Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. So, we met each other in person a couple of weeks ago in Dublin at SAS Talk, and you were very, very active at that event. And the first thing I'd love to know more about was how was that event? Was it a success? And, and what are you doing now with the momentum, hopefully, that you've gotten from that event? Absolutely. Uh, Sastock was awesome. It was my first time there. And we go to a fair amount of conferences now. That's a relatively new thing for us. But there's another one called Saster, which we kind of got our start at and did pretty well at. And I'd say Sastock ranks like right up there with Saster as far as how effective it was for us. What's interesting is that you're saying we were quite active there, but it was literally just me and one other person that were running around. We didn't have a booth. We didn't have a team there. It was just us walking around and shaking hands. One of our partners, Chili Piper, had invited us to co-sponsor a happy hour with two other sales tech companies, Dealfront and Surf. And we jumped on the opportunity to go sponsor them in Europe. I, I love coming over to, do, to Europe and we have a lot of users here. So I thought it was going to be a natural fit. But I was actually surprised at how many people at the conference knew about Lavender and knew about me and knew about our events and things like that. So it's exciting to meet all of our customers and our users from Europe in person. Yeah, awesome. And let's talk about that because the impression was that you all had a, a very strong presence there, but you didn't even have a booth actually. And that, no. that just dawned on me. Yeah. And but, but you co-sponsored the event. And that is something that you all do a lot. Community led, 
marketing and, and even sponsoring parties, meetups, happy hours. Tell me a little bit more about how you do that and how that's worked for you. We have a saying internally that we don't do booths, we just throw parties. And that tends to work for us pretty well. That is not quite true anymore. We actually had our first booth ever at a really small conference a couple of weeks ago in Nashville. But outside of that, we've never had a booth. And we always have just done events. And it goes back to when we were not a venture-backed company. We were bootstrapping with some angel funding. And we threw a rave in an Irish pub at a conference in San Mateo, California, just south of San Francisco called Saster Annual. We planned it pretty quickly. We didn't have a lot of money to put it together. We didn't think it was made it successful, but it ended up being the biggest event of the conference. And it really got the momentum going for what would eventually lead to our Series A and a bunch of other things that came positively from that. So since then, we've done a bunch of other events, dinners, happy hours, breakfast, meetups, like you've mentioned. But the ones we're known for are these like Saster parties. And then our biggest one was just a few weeks ago in Saster Mateo again. And this time we did like an Alice in Wonderland theme. We call it, called it Lavenderland uh, to promote our new streaming platform called Lavenderland. We have our original content that we produce in-house, like funny shows, game shows, series type shows. We turned this private jet airplane hangar into this like Alice in Wonderland themed event, had over a thousand people come, had alcohol sponsorships, and just had a really great party in this private jet hangar. Tons of investors were there, customers were there, prospects were there, and it just was kind of like the place to be at Saster. So mm-hmm. each time we do these events, people become like, they spread the word. We ended up activating at Dreamforce, the Salesforce conference. It happens right after Saster annual. And we didn't plan to do an event there. It was just me, one of my co-founders, and one of our employees. We decided with like 24 hours notice, let's do an event. And we found a nightclub through a party, had another 500 people come to that with 24 hours notice. So we're starting to see that as a B2B company, we're able to activate our audience with these events. So I suspect that we'll keep doing more and more of them. The one at Sastock was a joint effort, a happy hour between us and a few other companies, but people were coming because obviously for, for their customers as well, but our customers were coming because they had, they had heard about the reputation we had had for having great events. And it was a really fun one, although it wasn't a full-fledged lavender party. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like throwing parties is part of the DNA and the culture at Lavender. Yeah, totally. It's definitely part of the DNA, um, I think, of how I've approached marketing in the past. And it's cool to see it apply to Lavender. I think the key, though, is who our audience is. So Lavender is an AI tool to help sales reps write more effective emails. So a lot of our users are SDRs, like sales reps and AEs, account executives. They tend to be there's exceptions, obviously, but they tend to be coming out of college or a few years removed from college or normally in their 20s, maybe early 30s. But a lot of them, you know, they're, if they, especially if they're entry level coming out of college, like they're really used to that kind of that lifestyle of going to these events and going to parties and going to clubs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I think it really, it's like really fits our market where if I was in a different business, I'm not sure this, this strategy would work as well. But for our user, it's something that really resonates with them. That's really interesting. And that just gave me a thought. So most of your users, would you say, are then Gen Zers? Yeah, a lot of them are. Yeah. I mean, our product helps both the individual seller, think of it kind of like a a Grammarly in a a sense, but for a sales email. So it analyzes your email, your template, and looks for things that will hurt your reply rate based on your data. And then it helps you fix it using AI, as well as some workflow optimization tools like AI personalization and things like that. So most sales reps, especially if they are SDRs, they're the ones doing the cold calling and the cold emails. 
they are definitely Gen Z. They're typically in their first or second role out of college. Again, with some exceptions, yeah. of course. Or they're account executives, maybe in their mid to late 20s. And then there's a tool for the manager as well to go in and coach their team, kind of like a gong for email. In fact, we have the same investors as gong. And I think those the managers could be anywhere from Gen Z or millennial or older, but a large part for sure of our user base is Gen Z, yeah. What, what I'm thinking of is that a lot of the Gen Zers didn't really come up on email at all. So they don't have the, maybe the native skills that they came up with. Uh, I'm going to date myself here, I guess. But I mean, this, this is Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, maybe. But if they're two or three years out of university, they probably haven't written a lot of emails, especially not professional emails. So they probably don't have the culture of, of email writing at all. And, and part of it is just telling, coaching them up on this type of communication, which they've leapfrogged. Am I right? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's accurate, but I don't think it's that dissimilar even from when I went out of college. Like I wasn't trained in school on how to write professional emails. I was trained on how to write research papers and, and things for my professors. I think it's not that dissimilar between me 10 years ago and Gen Z now. They're trained to write papers, but I think a good point you make is that their method of communication tends to be shorter and their attention spans tend to be shorter from social media, from Instagram, TikTok, chat, et cetera. But those are touching every generation. So collectively, yeah. everyone's attention span has gotten shorter. I, one thing we've noticed, despite if you're Gen Z or not, is that people tend to write like they were trained. And in school, you typically write for a research paper, you're writing a longer, more formal, trying to sound really educated. And in many cases, is if you have a word limit, you're trying to say things in a longer way than you normally would to hit your word limit. So people have written really academically. What happens in the, in the business is that people's attention spans are really short, not just because of their brain being trained in that way from social media, but also because executives are inundated with lots of emails. So their inboxes are flooded both from their team, from their investors or their board or their other people that are trying to sell them stuff. So getting through that noise requires you to have a pretty concise email in most cases. But I think what's unique about Lavender is that everyone's different. So by and large, a shorter, more succinct email tends to perform better, but there's definitely situations where a longer, more in-depth email will perform better. So Lavender analyzes all of your historic data and figures out what worked best for you or for your team it gives recommendations based on that. So it could be different for you or for me on what a good email is. Also in the, in the situation that you're in. So different situations require different types of emails and Lavender will look at those differently and score them differently. So the sales rep can come in and unless they'd analyze hundreds of millions of emails, they never would have this much information and knowledge on, on what to do in that precise situation. Um, mm -hmm. Long answer to, to answer your question of, Yes. Um, I don't think a lot of college students are trained in professional emails, but even if they were, there'd be no, no way to keep up with the amount of data and how fast the trends are changing and what works and does not work in email. Yeah. So you're analyzing, you have your own massive database that you're analyzing, but you also analyze every customer's historic inbox. Is that right? So our goal this year, um, where we're kind of tracking toward is we'll finish this year having analyzed somewhere around a billion emails. That's a lot of insight on different situations and different types of emails and different types of industries. Lavender originally was supposed to be built for marketers. Uh, it wasn't called Lavender at the time, but we pivoted to Lavender during the pandemic. 
we were, we were building a startup to help people apply communication psychology, for their marketing emails and for their social media ads. A lot of the original science behind Lavender was how do you help people convert in these other types of mediums? We were transparently somewhat lucky that when we pivoted to Lavender, a lot of that same technology and that same science worked so well in sales emails. But in the very beginning, sales emails were not the use case for even Lavender. We put it out there during the pandemic for job seekers to help them find jobs. We just thought we could maybe make an extra ten dollars or $20,000 to stay alive a little bit longer during the pandemic because we were going to launch our other platform for marketers in March of 2020. And when COVID happened, everyone's in lockdown. No one's buying experimental marketing tech. So we lost our early customers. We lost our pipeline. At the time, our biggest customer was a co-working space in Manhattan. They couldn't even operate because of lockdowns. So we lost them, of course. And we just thought people are going to send more one-to-one emails during the pandemic. We didn't know exactly who was going to be doing it. We thought we could put together a little email widget, launch it on Product Hunt, and maybe make extra money just to stay alive. We had like maybe a month or two of runway left from our, our angel funding. So it was do or die, really. And salespeople somehow found it started posting about it on LinkedIn. And then it kind of went micro viral among some LinkedIn sales communities. And we just doubled down on LinkedIn, doubled down on salespeople and started building a feature a feature set and a product around mm-hmm. the sales use case. And then almost all of our marketing on LinkedIn. But um, the way we built it, because we did not originally build it just for sales emails, we built it for all sorts of things, has made Lavender, I think, more effective and, and more flexible. But then over time, as we've narrowed in on salespeople, We've now augmented that initial algorithm with lots and lots of sales email data. So it's become very fine-tuned for that specific use case over the past couple of years. Wow. So that, that pivot was a combination. It was that the product market fit was caused in part by COVID and just great timing. And so, sometimes this happens, I guess, that a particular group of people pick up your product. It wasn't necessarily intended for them originally, but then they, they take it and run with it. And then you have to follow that. Yeah, um, it was a guy named Nick Bennett, actually. And he had discovered it through a Slack group he was in. And then he installed our beta version. This is in like July of 2020. So maybe 30 days after we had launched our first version to our friends and families, maybe. So he was probably within our first 100 users looking back on that. And he posted a post on LinkedIn and then people downloaded it. And we just thought that was really interesting. We thought, why is this guy who we don't know post about this product that we built as a Hail Mary approach to save our fledgling startup in the middle of a global pandemic. But we thought that was really, really something we should look into. So we started we started posting on LinkedIn ourselves. Between me and my co-founder, we posted almost every day on LinkedIn for the past three years. My co-founder, Will, has become kind of synonymous with cold email. People call him the email guy. He's got 70,000 followers on LinkedIn that follow him just for cold email tips every day. We didn't start out that way. We just started out having really no money for marketing and knew that people were transitioning from a cold call dominant culture in sales to now having to sell through writing because people were not in the office. And back then, a lot of the phone numbers you would get from a data provider would be office numbers. But remote first, people aren't in the office. This switch happened where prior to COVID, you had about 70% of outbound activity for most sales teams was over the phone. And now it flipped where about 70% of outbound activity for sales teams during the pandemic was through writing, through email and through LinkedIn. And in the first quarter after the pandemic, the number of outbound emails went up by about 16% while reply rates dropped by half. 
the ability to write effectively in a time where more and more people are going into the inbox. Now there's more noise in the inbox paired with this like special moment in time where people shifted, especially salespeople from treating LinkedIn as a place to host your resume and find a job to a real social platform made our timing pretty much perfect for the product we were building because we had, we would have no way to have built out a sales team or to have done traditional paid marketing or a lot of other types of marketing had we not been able to just post for free on LinkedIn every single day. So I think there was a lot of luck involved in there. We did pivot on a dime. We had the idea on a Friday for the idea of getting our first version out by Monday. So it was like a weekend pivot in the very, very beginning. But it was like right problem at the right time with emerging social platform that no one had really cracked yet that we were able to get on really early. So definitely really good timing there. I have to agree that I remember around early 2020, there was still a great opportunity to build a big following pretty fast on LinkedIn. I don't think starting from zero or near zero now, I don't think you could do that on LinkedIn, even if you posted a day, every day or a few times a day. But a couple of years ago, like 2020 especially, I think that was definitely happening. I, I was more active in posting a, a lot of videos. I was posting a video every day back then. And I would get engagement rates much, much higher than I do now when I post the same type of content. And it was clear that, that LinkedIn, just as you said, it was, it was also going through a a big evolution from a place where you'd go to post your online resume and look for jobs to a place where you really are following people and you could really build thought leadership and you could build a personal brand. And I think that that wasn't really possible. I guess it was possible before a little bit with Twitter. There were some like mega names in the B2B community that had built personal brands. And you could also say on YouTube as well, you could build a personal brand. But I think nothing like LinkedIn in the last two or three years has given CEOs, co-founders, and other folks who have a passion and, and also who are courageous enough to put their stuff out there to give them the opportunity to create a personal brand. And I think probably your personal brand and also Will, your co-founder's personal brands, also you know, gave a whole lot of brand equity to Lavender. Well, I mean, would you say that that's also part of this? Yeah. I mean, for a really long time, the Lavender brand page was not as active as the will and the will page. Mm -hmm. So obviously my co-founder, he really niched down in his content every single day for like three years. It's been email content, cold email content, where my content was a bit more broad. I like to talk about entrepreneurship, startups, things I was learning, building the business, of course, email, but it was more varied. And you saw the fact that he just niched down and just did this one thing every single day. He's just become known for that. And he's built a larger following than me. No, we started when I had more followers than him, but we have different demographics though, like more founders and CEOs follow me and his primarily sales, sales reps because they follow him for that content. So it's interesting yeah. to see like how it's evolved over time, but definitely the founder content I think was more powerful than the brand content until maybe this year. And depending on who you ask, it's probably, it probably is more powerful for the ones that followed us longer term. Now we have a team and we're putting out more and more professional type content, but Back then, it was just doing us doing this very much bootstrapped founder type content, him just posting stuff. I try to find quirky, funny things to do. Like, for example, we have three songs on Spotify. We've we launched a couple of claymation episodes. We've done like a bunch of things that you wouldn't expect a B2B business to do. But that was mo mostly just due to capital constraints, trying to find like innovative yeah. pattern breaking things to that we could afford to do. But the, the brand, the founder led brand, I think is, was really instrumental in building the community. 
because it put a face to the brand where people, even today, they'll just DM me on LinkedIn for customer support requests. The other day, someone thought one of our help articles wasn't clear enough. So you just like DM me personally, where most of the time you would write into a support ticket or you'd email support for these sorts of things. But people feel like they're connected to us and they are, they're our users and, and we love that they're supporting us. We love working with them. But because of that, they think they, they, they have this personal connection with the founding team and then by extension, the brand. I think that part's really yeah. special. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. How many DMs do you get every day on LinkedIn? It's hard to tell. Our DMs are, are quite busy. We both, we had to both put up autoresponders on there. Like if you need support, like go to this support email because we may not get back to you in time, but they are quite messy. And the ones I love the most though, I do try to go through them. And the ones that aren't just like trying to sell me something, I do try to respond to, to most people. The ones I love the most are the ones that write in and they're just like, lavender changed my likes for whatever reason. We've had people write in and say they had OCD or they were dyslexic or they had all this anxiety around writing email and lavender like changed it changed their lives around that. We had people write in saying they almost were going to lose their job because they weren't hitting their quota. And now they are hitting their quota because of Lavender. We saved their job. We've had people write in saying that they couldn't find a job and they use Lavender, which is free for job seekers and always has been. They've used Lavender to email hiring managers and they found a job using our product. And that's really ex exciting as well. And then of course, like the more basic stuff of I used Lavender, I made more sales and now I can go, guy was like, I can go golfing on Fridays now and stuff like that. Like it's all fun to hear, yeah, but the ones that are really cool are the ones that are like deeper than just making more sales and really, really has impacted their lives. Yeah. And do the same rules apply to LinkedIn DMs as email in general, which is keep it short and concise, get right to the point and uh, get it to the short attention span? Yeah. And by, by the way, again, um, there are actually email situations where a longer email will outperform a shorter email. And again, it's all really de dependent on your own data. So Lavender will adjust based on what works for you. But by and large, yes, for most situations and for most prospects, a shorter email is going to outperform a longer email. I think LinkedIn is very similar to that. There's like a common complaint on LinkedIn that in-mails don't work or LinkedIn DMs don't work. And I don't think that's true. I think they do work, but people treat DMs and in-mail like they do email, which typically has this, all the same problems. They're, they're not trying to engage in a conversation. They're just trying to feature dump their product and their value prop. They send a massive message. So I think these are the same traps that people fall into in email, where a lot of people think about the, like, the common like marketing focus of a call to action. And in sales and email, it's more about a call to conversation. Like the whole focus is getting a reply. People typically aren't going to buy your product off that very first email. But if you can get them to reply, then you can start working on setting up that next step, which might be a phone call or a meeting or then just getting more information through, through email. So Lavender is actually releasing in our next release, a LinkedIn integration. 
So you'll see Lavender within your LinkedIn DMs, your LinkedIn messages, and it can help you write those as you're doing prospecting on LinkedIn. We do a lot of social selling because we got built our brand on LinkedIn. But yeah, for the most part, there are a lot of similarities. Keep it concise, make sure it's clear. So clear, concise, and customized to your prospect. I think those are, that's a good starting point. And now with the introduction of, of generative AI, so many, now there's the opportunity to do personalization at scale, like we've never seen before, particularly for outbound emails. Um, how is that going to change the landscape? Because I mean, our inboxes are already flooded for the most part. Most of the outbound cold emails that I get every day are not personalized at all. I mean, maybe, maybe they get my first name in there, but that's about it. But we're going to move soon to another age where it's going to be pretty easy and the tools are going to allow for customization at scale. They're going to be able to bring in some information about our company or recent news. Is that going to result in even more inbox overwhelm or is it going to improve outbound cold email? Where do you see that going? I think it's going to be a combination. So there was a, a time in sales history when I got started in sales where there was no sequencer, there were no auto dialers. I had to write all my emails myself and I had to make all the dials myself. And then what happened next was you had tools come out that did email cadencing, like our partners at Outreach or SalesLoft, HubSpot, these types of companies. You also had auto dialers come in that allowed you to send a lot of emails. So what happened was volume stopped being a competitive advantage. Before them, if I could write more emails or make more dials than the person next to me, I could probably outperform them. But now everyone can send an email or a thousand emails. It makes no difference, same amount of time. So what you see is now people starting to, to reject the automation of emails unless it's really personalized, like way more than just, hey, I saw you worked at X company and you know posted Y or whatever. Like those things are being automated now. And what we're finding to your point is that there are more fake personalization emails going out because of this concept of personalization at scale, where our approach and our perspective is if it's at scale, it's not personalized. It's kind of oxymoronic, but you are going to find that just like with templated emails that were sent in cadencers, there will be more automation. And I think people will start to detect what is the AI email and what is the human email. And our thought is that if a sales rep won't spend three to five minutes to write me a personalized email, and they're going to rely on some at scale component of, of fake personalization, then why would I spend 30 minutes or an hour with them to look at their demo or listen to their sales pitch? So we mm -hmm. approached it a different way. We build our entire product against these two axes of what's effective and what's, what's efficient. So what's most efficient is full automation. What's most effective is no automation and intense personalization. But and with high efficiency, you'll have low reply rates. With high effectiveness, you'll have low volume. So we kind of find someplace in the middle. So what Lavender does in our personalization tool, it's not quite at scale, but it does reduce true personalization down to under 30 or 60 seconds for most users. It pulls in all the data available on your recipient and their company. This could be like job listings or news, like you mentioned, funding announcements, social posts. We, we waterfall in numerous data providers to bring them all into the platform. And then AI suggests different ways you could personalize the email. Or you can, you can click which one you want to use and, and bring that in. So it's not fully at scale, but it does streamline all the work and make it much easier for the user. And mm -hmm. that's really our approach when it comes to how we're building alongside the generative AI, which we actually implemented back in 2021. So we've, been, we've had it in our products for a while, although this year, of course, ChatGPT has really taken the world by storm. But 
the underlying models that power it, we have that in, in Lavender as well as some others built by other companies. Yeah. Yeah. I guess now, I mean, th this was the overall, the dominant theme of SaaS talk a couple of weeks ago in Dublin is, is AI, AI, and practically every presentation talked about it. Do you think it's, it's now an imperative for practically every SaaS company to be building generative AI functionality into their products because the users are going to expect it? I think it depends. I mean, not every product is generating things like, but yeah, I think for the most part, either the product needs to have AI in it, generative or otherwise, or the business needs to be using generative AI to make their employees more efficient and more effective. Even mm -hmm. something as simple as brainstorming, like we're, we're testing lots of use cases with AI in our product. And some of the things that we're using it for, if our user sat down and just thought about it, let's say, for example, just generating all the things that might be important to you. If I wrote down a list, I could probably figure out based on your persona, your business, whatever, 10 things that could be important to you. That might take me just as a, a you know entry-level sales rep, it might take me 10 minutes to do that. Or I can feed all your data to the generative AI models that can just tell me what it predicts you're going to find important. And then Lavender can then use that to help you structure your email. So I think a lot of the things the models are doing, the human could do, but they would probably just be less efficient in doing that. So I think mm -hmm. AI is becoming table stakes. Either you have it in your product or in your business, or you're going get, to get kind of get left behind. But what I've noticed is a lot of companies, because of this, because of how hot it is right now in this hype cycle around generative AI, a lot of companies, especially the bigger ones, have rushed to deploy generative AI into their products. And you've seen a couple of them actually sunset those features because the outputs were not that great. It was still really robotic, mm -hmm. but it's getting better all the time. So I think over the next year or two, more companies will be way more intentional about how they're building AI into their product and the output's going to be a lot better. But off the shelf in a lot of products I've seen, the generative AI functions are not that great. They come off as kind of robotic. Also, they're very generic in a lot of cases where yeah. I think what's really important about how you built it out with Lavender, which has for every email you're generating, over a hundred prompts go into correcting an email in our product. So imagine interfacing with ChatGPT for a hundred prompts to make your email. That's like what's happening in a couple of seconds using a tool like ours. We also stack multiple large language models. We have with, we have the tool behind ChatGPT, GPT-4, as well as several others that we bring together based on the use case. And it's all tied back into your data set. So I think companies will start to build on the LLMs much more intelligently. They'll start building more custom LLMs internally based on their data and their clients' data. But what I've seen for a lot of companies, not all of them, but for a lot of companies right now, is that they haven't fully used the capabilities of these of the tool. But yeah, it's going to be table stakes. People have to have it. Yeah. Right. It seems like a lot of a lot of SaaS companies brushed some features out just so they maybe wouldn't feel left behind. But I've I've been amazed just going to chat GPT and, and creating marketing content. Um, it's great. Everything from, yeah, I mean, just taking a persona and, and splitting that into 10 different micro personas and then creating five to 10 headlines for every one of those micro personas mm -hmm. and then creating images with Dali yeah. for all of those different micro personas that we could use for social media. So stuff that would have taken days, if not weeks, it just happens almost instantly. And it's blowing my mind right now, really. I love it. And that, outside yeah. of just like generating content, I kind of, I, I love it as like a second brain in a way of like ChatGPT. I'm thinking about this concept. Like, what do, what do you think about it? And think of it from the lens of X angle or 
ChatGPT, I'm trying to combine three different concepts and like, how do they link together? Like, help me think through this. So I, I really always wanted, like, for example, with like Neuralink, if I'm from Elon and stuff, I've always seen like the future of that really interesting. If you could instantly access endless knowledge about everything that ever happened in the world, just how powerful you would be. And ChatGPT is essentially that, except you've got to interact with it with typing, but it can, yeah. I mean, if I wanted to write a business plan based on, I don't know, I'm just some business from the 14th century or something like best practices from then, and then combine that with a projected business 20 years from now, ChatGPT would come up with something. I don't know. I just made that up. I'm yeah. not sure what it would be, but like it can pull information from such varied places and tie it together and help you think through things in, in new ways. I think it's really fascinating. It's just, it's getting so good so fast. Yeah. Although it's so, yeah. still wrong a lot, but it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. It still hallucinates a lot and that can be funny. It, it's always going to give you some sort of an answer. It's, it's never going to remember. Yeah. But, um, I think that the key skill set for marketers in this, in this new world is, is really about prompt design mm -hmm. more than anything else. It's just knowing how to interact with this, how to phrase a question. So if, if I really, really wanted to get a really good output, I'd have to describe my persona in a lot of detail. I'd have to describe my goals. Not just, hey, give me five different segments of an entrepreneur or something, but I'd have to say, you know, it's this type of, I'd have to get it a lot more specific. And by the way, uh, I was I was messing around with the ChatGPT app and you can do voice inputs now. You can speak to it and give it voice voice prompts. So that's that, that's going to be also a lot of fun. And it seems to work okay. I mean, it can understand pretty pretty well. Are you all... You, you mentioned earlier in the pre-show that you are just now starting uh, the paid marketing because you all have been doing all organic growth, community-led um, all along. As you're starting to look at paid, what, what kind of opportunities do you see for, for growth marketing? Yeah. So I think at our core, historically, at least for myself, I've been more of a brand marketer. That's what I really loved about the early startup journey was how to build the brand and build that community on social. But we have started recently, like within the past couple of months, started to experiment with more paid. That's not something that I'm personally overseeing, but loosely we are doing ads on like regular social platforms because we think of B2B no different than B2C in many ways. Like we're trying to get the individual person to buy or use our product, not the organization as a whole. So we're you know, targeting the actual decision makers. We're doing some of this on YouTube. We have a series of like funny professional videos we did with this character, Lavender Joe which wears like a, a lime green suit and goes out and does all the cheesy things that salespeople do in real life. Like we like literally put him in a park in Toronto with hidden cameras and watched him do this. We have ads running for like awareness like that, just funny, quick ads. We have more conversion ads running on LinkedIn, targeting the decision makers. We're experimenting with story ads as well. So I think there's a lot we can do with story ads, not just for adoption and acquisition, but also retention. So like ongoing training uh, of users that might be at risk. So I think a lot of things we're going to be experimenting with over the next couple quarters. I don't have any hard data yet. We're still trying yeah. to figure this out, but I definitely want to figure out a way where we know for X amount of dollars in to paid, we're able to have some, some outcome, but because we were bootstrapped in, in for so long, we never really had the extra capital to do a lot of paid, paid marketing. We had to rely on word of mouth content. And from that angle, which I can probably talk more about, one of the key things we did was we never gated our content and we did very little product marketing, which we're now starting to do more of as we scale up. But in the early days, when it was just me and Will doing most of the marketing, we did everything against these two axes. 
be helpful and informative. And that's like number one. So that's why we'll really double down on really helpful, informative content around sales email. Then on the helpful side, we did lots of things for the community. For example, giving our product for free to job seekers, students, and bootstrapped entrepreneurs. We also did a campaign where we helped people with Christmas gifts for the holidays if they were laid off from their job. Uh, we bought turkeys for people for Thanksgiving, so things just to give back to the community. And then so helpful and informative on one axis. Then the other one is be creative and different. And that's where all the quirky brand type stuff came in. It was pattern disrupting in the feed. We're applying the same principles now to our paid spend campaigns, but for the longest time though, it was all just organic word of mouth because it's all we could afford to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. One of the things that I'm looking more into now, I don't have a strategy exactly developed for this yet, but we'll come with one, is Snapchat. So what I, for our users being Gen Z coming out of college, one thing I've noticed at different events is that there's really two types of people that are around me. There's people that record videos on their iPhone camera, and then the younger people are recording the videos on their Snapchat camera. So I, I think people think that like Snapchat died off for a while, but the people that are now coming out of college or in college who are going to be our core users, I've just noticed them in real life, way more active on Snapchat over the past 12 months or so. So we're, we're looking into that now. That's interesting. Um, well, I'll pull back a little bit and ask you a broader, op more open-ended question. What excites you most about the future? It's a really broad question. Um, yeah. I'm really, tech and marketing side, I'm really excited for like the things you mentioned, like the future of technology and, and AI and how this really helps just streamline everything in people's lives. But I think more personally, I'm excited to just keep building. Like I, I told my co-founder earlier today, like we are now living the dream that we wanted five years ago when we got started. And we dreamed of being a venture-backed company and having thousands of people love our product and go on podcasts like this one when we were just two guys in a co-working space just trying to make ends meet every couple of weeks needing to hustle for five or 10K and angel funding just to stay alive a little bit longer, coming hours from death so many times, skipping payrolls, paying our engineer on my credit card, like eating free ramen at the co-working space. So like, I'm just excited to keep building. I'm so grateful that this community has rallied around our product and at SaaS Doc, people literally were telling us, like, we want you to win. Like, the, they have a personal investment in us succeeding. So every day is something new. And with that, as a founder, it's super challenging because you have to, especially right now, scaling a team, having to manage a team and, and make all the right decisions and obviously making a lot of wrong decisions along the way. But I think, like, just the opportunity to do this, both really grateful for, as well as our other co-founder, Casey, our CTO. It's been my singular goal for the past decade to get to this point. And I'm just really excited for whatever comes next. I don't, I know it's gonna be a lot of hard stuff, but also I'm sure there's a lot of wins along the way and we're just excited for that. Sounds, sounds amazing. And Will, uh, Will, what did I not ask you that you wished I would have asked you? I think the, the thing that is really important if you try to employ a lot of the things that Lavender has done is just authenticity. So there's been a, marketers from really big companies that I have been at networking events with. And they've asked me about how we built the Lavender brand because they're trying to figure out their LinkedIn strategy, for example. And I've told them so much of it just comes back to this concept of give first. Our whole thing, it's a core value of the company is to give first without expectation of return. That's why we give our product for free if you can't afford it, as well as a lot of the things that we've done for the community. And also is why we've, we've never gated content and we don't gate content. And that's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of marketers. But 
when I've been, when I've been asked this by these CMOs and they say, I tell them this whole story and they say, that's a great tactic. And I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. It's not really a tactic. It's gotta be what the brand authentically does. So you can't really copy and paste a lavender method, but look for ways in your own business where you have an opportunity to help your community. And if you do it over and over and over, you start to become known as a company that helps your community. For example, I was at Dreamforce, Salesforce's conference last year, and a lady came up to me and said, I, I, I know Lavender. And the reason I know Lavender is because you give your product away for free to job seekers. And one of my friends used your, your tool to find a job. So I think stuff like that, just really authentically showing up for your users and your community versus thinking of this give first mindset as a tactic to help you scale or a growth hack. I think that's really the important thing. At least that's what's worked for us so far. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, not not a growth hack, but really just part of who you are. I mean, the the culture of giving, it's great. Um, well, I think I'm out of questions, Will. This has been great. Thanks for being with me today, Will. I really enjoyed the conversation. Everybody go check out lavender.ai. I've been using it and sharing it with my team. And we didn't even get into all the virality that's embedded, naturally embedded in the product. But you all are probably just still at the start of what's going to be an amazing journey. So I wish you all the best. Yeah. Um, the, vir the virality part's an interesting one. I'll end with that. Like sure. thinking about the, the viral coefficient. So I think it's one thing in our product, there are parts, parts of it that are inherently viral, but there's friction to sharing for the user. So we're rebuilding not only our website, but we're rebuilding our entire product right now. And we're launching the next version of Lavender, the new user experience, new user interface, and a whole lot of improvements in Q1. And one of those is how to help increase the virality of the product. So it's called the viral coefficient, basically how many people are coming into the product for every new user you acquire. So probably a whole other podcast, but definitely for your listeners, something to think about, like how do you always have a positive viral coefficient where looking for little actions where every user has an incentive to invite another user. What we did in the early days was really study mobile gaming and how that was part of their user experience. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine that drives CAC way, way down if you've got a high viral coefficient. Every new user that you acquire is inviting in five, five more users, then your CAC is, is uh, reduced by, you know, down to one fifth of what it, what it previously was. So it's a, it's a big, very, very powerful thing. And outside of CAC, it also helps with, I think, getting better logos sooner and also mm -hmm. geographic expansion sooner. So we have over 10% of our users and customers and revenue coming from Europe. And we didn't do any marketing or sales into Europe with the exception of earlier this year, we threw a party, but that was already the data before the party. So that's because we've built virality into our content and into our product. We also had logos before we were, just, we were a couple of people. We had Twilio and Segment, we had Brex. We had companies that people would know. Now we have Google, we have SAP. We've got enterprise accounts at a company mm -hmm. that's still quite a small startup. And it's because at all of these accounts, we have a bunch of individual users who have found us through our viral content and viral product. And then a groundswell happens internally. So when we reach out with our sales team, there's already a lot of brand recognition and awareness in the company at the individual contributor level. So when a manager says, uh, what's Lavender? Or have you guys heard about Lavender in their Slack or, or their teams or whatever? And people say, yeah, I use Lavender. All these hand raisers come up that have used the product. It makes the sales process at a company of our size 
a lot easier to get these really great logos and also to expand a lot faster outside of our initial market. Just because the viral presence has gotten more people around the world to know about us. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we've touched on a lot of stuff, Will. This was great. And wish you all the best and looking forward yeah. to following Lavender's journey in the months and the years ahead. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.